Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Welcome back, GC. It's good to uh, to be here again with you. You know, it's been a fairly quiet two weeks at the court. There haven't been any oral arguments, uh, but there has been some exciting news uh, related to the court and a couple of noteworthy orders I thought we could talk about today. Yes. On the news front, last week marked Justice Clarence Thomas's 30th year on the court. I hope uh, for 30 more, 30 <laughs> more years. We here at Heritage, along with the Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State over at George Mason's Law School, held a symposium to discuss and celebrate the justice's legacy. We had panels of federal judges, law professors, and Supreme Court litigators who discussed Justice Thomas's jurisprudence on federalism and the separation of powers, civil rights, the role of natural law, and on originalism. We also had a conversation with the producer and the developer of the documentary about Justice Thomas's life. Uh, the documentary is called Created Equal, Justice Thomas in His Own Words. It's a phenomenal watch, and I highly recommend it. And we also had a discussion by four legendary Supreme Court advocates, Noel Francisco, Paul Clement, Jeff Wall, and Lisa Blatt, about advocacy in the Thomas era court. It was a fantastic discussion. Yeah, it was. The whole program was excellent. And the good news is that if you missed it, it's all recorded. Uh, There will be a link in the description of this episode where you can watch or listen to each of the panels. Now, Zach, turning to orders, we had some news in the Texas abortion cases. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there are two separate cases related to Texas's abortion law, SB 8, uh, and the court decided to set both of them for oral argument on November 1st. Uh, by Supreme Court standards, these cases are moving at light speed <laughs> from when they were granted cert to when the court set oral argument. The court has not consolidated the cases for argument, so there will be two separate arguments, uh, one for the challenge to Texas's law involving private plaintiffs, and then another one with the U.S.'s challenge to Texas's law. Now, both cases challenge SBA, which bans most abortion after a child's heartbeat is detected, uh, but SBA has some unique procedural features to it and essentially gives enforcement power to private civil lawsuits uh, rather than to Texas as a governmental entity. So at this stage, the constitutionality of the underlying law is not an issue. So these cases are not really about challenges to Roe v. Wade or Planned Parenthood v. Casey, like the Dobbs case uh, will be later in the court's term. The issues here are more procedural, like whether the federal government has a right to sue in federal court to block Texas's law, uh, whether the federal government or the private parties have standing, and whether the lower court judge abused his power in broadly enjoining state officials, including state judges, uh, from participating in the enforcement of the law. Uh, The fact that the court has fast-tracked these two cases uh, suggests that they want them out of the way before the justices turn to the Dobbs case, although I think we can all say that the Dobbs case will certainly be looming large over these two cases as well. I'm uh, just impressed. So uh, Texas Solicitor General uh, Judge Stone is going to be arguing those cases. He's going to be arguing two Supreme Court cases back to back in the same day. And I was thinking, Zach, a future trivia question. How many other people have argued multiple Supreme Court cases in the same day? I don't actually know the answer to that. So if the listeners uh, know or know of anyone else who has done that, please send, uh, send us the info. 
that would be a fascinating answer. And I hope uh, I hope we get some good responses to it. And regardless, I hope that Judd is able to take a well-deserved vacation <laughs> after he argues these <laughs> no two cases. Uh, so there were two other uh, quick pieces of news that I wanted to mention, GC. Uh, one is that the Biden administration's nomination for Solicitor General Elizabeth Preliger uh, moved forward in the Senate, and I suspect confirmation uh, will be taking place any day now. Uh, so there should be a new Solicitor General uh, shortly. And then the other piece of information I wanted to highlight is a recent emergency petition filed with the court. Uh, it's uh, The case is Doe's v. Mills. It's out of Maine. And essentially, a group of healthcare workers are challenging Maine's vaccine vaccine mandate uh, because it does not allow for any religious exemptions. Uh, the mandate is slated to go into effect shortly. The application for emergency relief was made to Justice Breyer, and Justice Breyer uh, requested briefing and a response, uh, essentially, on that motion. Uh, so the justices have this under advisement, and it will be uh, interesting to see what they do with this request. And with that, we'll move along to our interview. Well, we have the pleasure today of being joined by Judge Andy Oldham of the Fifth Circuit. Judge, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Judge, before we dive into your legal career, I have, I think, the most important question I'm going to ask you today. You're born in Virginia, went to college at UVA, but you've become a Texan and you lived many years now in Austin. So... Cavaliers or Longhorns? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I love them both dearly. Um, Texas is obviously my adopted home, and I'm, I'm very, very proud um, to have my chambers here. Um, I'm extraordinarily proud um, uh, to teach at the University of Texas and um, occasionally, and, and, I, and I do cheer for the Longhorns uh, when I get the chance. But my, my family, a lot of my family is still back in Virginia, um, and I'm, I'm proud of my alma mater there too. So um, as a as an aficionado, um, and in particular of sports, um, I, I I cheer for both teams, and I'm blessed that um, you know until the, they merge the SEC and the ACC, I suppose I won't have to watch the two of them compete head to head. A very judicial uh, split the baby <laughs> approach. I appreciate that. Of course. <laughs> so, Judge, turning to your career, did you already always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? Oh my gosh, no, uh, no. To the, the actually the exact opposite. Both of my parents are doctors. And I can't actually think of another lawyer in my family on either side. Um, and even if you count, you know, start sort of going out for the tree into second cousins, I can't think of another lawyer. So I, I went to the University of Virginia with the intention of being a doctor. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I guess the end of my first year there, um, I took a, an introduction to economics course and fell in love with the material, my I particularly um, de I developed a particularly close relationship with uh, the professor who taught that. His name is Ken Elzinga, st still at the University of Virginia. And Professor Elzinga was a was an antitrust economist, but he did a lot of work at the law school and and was doing some serious um, and very interesting law and econ work related to antitrust economics at the time. And and so I became close to him, and and that was my entree into the legal world, a, a thing that I really had never particularly studied, but um, largely through my relationship with him, fell in love with. Interesting. So after college, you uh, did what's called, you earned a master's of philosophy from Cambridge. What is a master's of philosophy and what did you study? Yeah, that's, um, so the, at least at Cambridge, you know, your, your two graduate options would be an MPhil and a DPhil, you know, which would in our, in our parlance would roughly translate to a master's and a doctorate or PhD um, in, in the latter case. 
Um, and so the, the master's is obviously the less intensive and the, the less um, um, uh, uh, sort of sh- shorter period of time proposition. And uh, at, when I first went over there, I was thinking about exploring a graduate degree in economics. Um, that is a, a full PhD. I, I never intended to do it in, in England, but I was sort of debating the idea of um, going over there, um, studying some economics in particular. I was into econometrics and statistics at the time, and uh, and I've always had a heart for applied math. And so that was kind of what I was um, had the vision for doing. And it was while I was there that I really made the decision that, like, in fact, as much as I, I love all of this and, and I had developed relationships with um, economics um, experts and consultants and folks who, who did that intersection between economics and, and law and litigation, um, that I just my, – my heart was, was not in the idea of staying long enough to get a doctorate either there or coming back to the United States and, and enrolling in a PhD program. I just didn't think I had the – the stamina to sit in the library for seven years as much as I love mm. the library. Um, and so that's kind of when I made the decision. I, I applied to law school from England and never looked back. So you went to law school and then afterwards you clerked for Judge David Centel. Is it Centel or Centelli? I, I never remember. Yeah, Centel. You had it the first time. Centel mm. on the D.C. circuit. What was that experience like? Oh, my gosh. It was such a, a dream. Like getting hired by him was was and it just ex- extreme, extraordinary, indescribable honor um, as a as a law student. Um, we I felt like we had a lot in common even before I even applied to him. Um, his uh, his wife Jane, uh, her maiden name is Oldham. We share we share a maiden name. We played a lot huh. of the kind of the name game to figure out if our somehow our families were were related, and we kind of got into the rough general vicinity of the the sort of the middle of the southeastern United States, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky area, where we could sort of trace grandfathers and great-grandfathers, et cetera, back, um, but never fully fully linked that up. Hmm. Um, Judge Intel, um, like my dad, went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, so we, we had a lot to talk about with respect to um, UNC sports and um, but more than than the sort of the the personal details, um, Judge Sintel was a just an incredible influence on me as a young man, as a young lawyer. Um, he is in a, a a towering jurist and legal mind, um, but but also just an incredible gentleman. Um, he had taught me so much about um, ways to think about law, ways to think about um, jurisprudence. I worry that that word is sometimes hackneyed in the point that or to the overused to the point of being hackneyed. But I, I mean it in its in its kind of most essential form. That is just the the, the philosophy that goes into how to decide cases, um, how to think about the role of law in in the American system of constitutional government. He he was just um, extraordinary to me in so many different ways, and, and a mentor um, to me both before the you know, before I actually got to, to clerking with him, and then obviously throughout my entire career, he's been a, a constant source of encouragement and wisdom and guidance. Do you have any particularly special memories of him? Oh gosh, um, yeah, more than more than we can do in a podcast. <laughs> um, I, I should probably um, write them all down and, and turn them into a, a book or something. It would be, it would embarrass him, which is the reason I wouldn't do it. But I, um, yeah, so so many things. He's, he's for those who have ever met him. You know, he is just a the, the most kind hearted, wonderful, happy, g- gentle genius of a man. Um, and we had so many wonderful experiences, but you know, every, everything from the, the moment he walks in to the office in the morning with his boots and his hat and his belt buckle, um, <laughs> to, to the, um, our lunches together at my brother's place, which is a, a restaurant that at least back then was 
about a block and a half from the DC circuit to our afternoon breaks, um, smoking cigars and, um, and going to baseball games. I, I just, uh, the entire year, um, was so magical and, 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 and influenced so much of the way I think about both law, but also even now in, in the way I think about my relationships with my law clerks, I, I'm mm. constantly, one of the things I tell them is that if, if I can give you half of the year that Judge Sintel gave me, then I will count it a success. Mm. He, he was, he's incredible. You went on to clerk for Justice Alito on the mm. Supreme Court. What was that experience like? Oh my gosh. You don't talk about heady. Um, <laughs> my goodness. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. I was I was there October term two thousand eight, and so Justice Alito at the time was the junior justice, mm. and um, and it was if I if memory serves it was um, it was it was an incredible year. There was a whole lot of wonderful things that happened that year, not the least of which is that the the Phillies won the the World Series <laughs> that November. So it was a, it was quite a celebratory year in the Alito chambers, at least that for the fall. And uh, he was incredible. He was an incredible mentor to me. Uh, he he was an incredible uh, boss, and I learned so much from him about, in particular, the, the sort of the way that the court's docket works, the way the um, the cert pool um, works, or the perhaps not calling it the pool, but more just the, the certiorari process works. A ton about legal writing. Um, I was completely um, just addicted to being in the courtroom, um, <laughs> even for cases that were not that I was not directly working on. I just wanted to be there to see him. I learned a ton about the ways he has this just unbelievable and uncanny ability to use a question to really get at the heart of a legal dispute, the real flex points in an argument, um, the real sort of outcome determinative um, questions or facts that, 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 that are motivating or turning a case. Um, so I, I, it was an incredible year to be inside that building um, for 365 days. I, um, I still remember... Uh, turning in my badge and and the feeling of mm. just loss and grief that um, I've never experienced with, at the end of a job before. I mean, it's it's a year that um, you know, in many ways you pack in five years of life into those 365 days. Mm. Um, but when it ends, it, it almost feels like 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 a sense of loss that you might experience. It's like a funeral or something. It's just you you lose this this ability to see and experience and and hear and learn and and contribute in some very small way. Um, to the to the the court as an institution, um, and and the, the the tapestry of history that um, both for clerks and justices in that building, mm-hmm. um, and, and to just be a, a piece of it. I mean, not not that I was particularly contributing to any of it, but just to be in the place, experiencing it from a different vantage point that other people get, um, is indescribable. It is, is mm-hmm. an indescribable feeling. You know, that's a perspective, uh, a clerk's perspective I hadn't heard before. That's really interesting. Do you have any special memories of Justice Alito? Oh gosh, yes. I have, I have lots from the clerkship, but um, one of the great things is is Justice Alito is the, the circuit justice for the Fifth Circuit. So now I get I get memories right. and experiences with him in this job too, which it's just a um, a, a treat that um, is is hard to express in in English. Um, no, I think one of the <laughs> one of the things that I, I most remember is that that World Series year and watching him. Um, experienced the the Phillies ascension um, to the to the top of the major leagues. You know he's he is a diehard fan, um, and calling him a fan I think isn't is it, it just that's not a, a proper summary of it. For those who have met him or or been to a Phillies game with him or or, or understand the way he relates to that that team, um, a fan is is the understatement of the century. <laughs> um, and so watching them succeed and watching his 
um, joy through that experience. Um, it was really awesome. It was really awesome. It's a <laughs> franchise that has had its had its ups, obviously, but it's had a lot of downs. And so um, he certainly waited a long time to experience it, and I was, I was really thrilled for him. Did either Judge Santel or Justice Alito have any traditions with their clerks? Yeah, well, we t- we've talked, I guess, about two of them. Um, I think I've seen baseball games with both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that that is um, a wonderful one. Um, Judge Santel... Um, in, I guess we talked about cigars too. Justin Dell loves, loves to smoke cigars <laughs> with his clerks. That's a thing that's been um, never mandatory. It's totally optional, but part of the Sintel family. And, and a lot of I, it's funny. I've met Sintel clerks who um, who clerked for him many, many, many years before me, and, and many, many years after me. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's interesting to, that we have these things that we can sort of talk about and share in common. Judge Sintel had a, a barbecue at his house in August. That's basically at the beginning of the clerk year. So the new clerks could come and meet all of the old clerks. And when I say old clerks, I don't just mean the outgoing ones, but also want, you know, alumni who would be in the D.C. area and, and able to um, come back and, and meet. So that was always fun and, and a wonderful experience. Justice Alito obviously has, has law clerk reunions, which have been incredible. Um, I, I, I don't know, but I, I always worry that we, we make him uncomfortable by focusing on him as much as we do and, and being so grateful and, and that there's huge outpourings of of gratitude to him for all that he's done to touch our lives. Um, but they're both um, obviously towering influences in my life and, and um, men to whom I owe basically everything um, because they, they taught me and, and helped me and mentored me all the way here. On the subject of your clerk reunions, um, have you, how have the, the, the relationship you formed either with your co-clerks or the other clerks you've met and come to know at these reunions shaped your career? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's wild. Um, you know, I lived in D.C. for for a long time, obviously, for both of those clerkships. And, um, you know, I was I was in the Justice Department for a while and private practice for a while there. Um, and so I, I had met a lot of people, clerked with a bunch of people. But then I was just constantly shocked by – it seemed like every time I would turn around, whether it was a, a case or an amicus brief or – um, some, uh, you know, conflict or something, you know, uh, that is like some law firm would get, have a conflict on a case and get referred out. I was just constantly bumping into to folks that I, I had clerked with, uh, more folks that I was in the Justice Department with or what have you. Um, for, for a big town and in our nation's capital, it is a teeny tiny little market sometimes when you realize that you, it feels like you know everybody and everybody knows mm-hmm. everybody. Besides uh, the two judges you clerked for, who have some of your other mentors been? Um, well, certainly in, in Texas, our good governor, Greg Abbott, you know, he was the, the, the man who hired me to, to come down here um, when I lived in, in D.C. Um, and he, he gave me my – I don't even remember how many jobs I actually had for him um, <laughs> over the course of my, my tenure with him in the attorney general's office and the governor's office. Um, but he's, he's been um, just a huge influence on me and, and has always been incredibly gracious and kind to me. Um, you know, one of the things I always think is really interesting – um, in, in a place like Texas, and especially if you are in the um, you know the world of Texas politics, is you know there, Texas is like its own country, um, and it has its own sense of identity and 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 everything. But um, Governor Abbott always treated me as if I you know was was a was a native. I was I was never mm-hmm. the fact that I was an immigrant didn't didn't change any of the, our relationship, and and was always very. Um, like loving and kind and, and helpful to me and, and obviously helped me in, in, in countless ways um, along the way. I've been really blessed, I think, when I look back and I think about the various offices that I worked in. I, I had partners at, at 
I guess what's now Kellogg Hanson. I, I still mm-hmm. tend to default to calling it Kellogg Huber, which was the name of the firm when I was there, um, who, who taught me extraordinary lessons in, in how to represent clients, how law firms work, law firm economics, um, legal writing. Um, I, I developed uh, wonderful um, friendships and, and mentorship relationships when I was at that firm. Um, and also in the, in the Justice Department where I met people when I was in the Justice Department who I bumped back into when I was, you know, going through the confirmation process or, or working on a case or doing a moot court. Um, I would just be, I felt like I was constantly bumping into these people who had touched my life in these other ways previously. When you were at, uh, at the, the Department of Justice, what were some of the things you did there? So I, I worked in the, the Office of Legal Counsel, um, which is um, – you know, I, I think if you you talk to an OL, you talk to ten OLC alums, they probably give you ten different descriptions of what that office does. And the way I've heard it described, which I, I suppose is is a fair way of describing, it, is it's like the lawyer's lawyer. It's like the attorney general's lawyer, in a sense, um, because it provides um, one of the things it does. It provides guidance, um, legal guidance, legal counsel, as the name would imply, to all manner of pieces of the executive branch. Um, it also has an opinion writing function. Um, one of the great gifts I have in my office are, are um, copies of OLC opinions, which uh, from back when I was um, when I was in the office. And those opinions can arbitrate disputes between different parts of the executive branch. You know, when the, the housing and arena development is having a disagreement with you know health and, and human services, um, they can turn to OLC to effectively determine what statute governs and which way. But between those two things, those two, I think what you would sort of think of as kind of the traditional roles of OLC, there are just hundreds or thousands or countless even um, different roles that OLC provides in, in, in the counseling function of, that, of the Justice Department. And one of the things I loved about that job, I was obviously very young when I was there, um, but one of the things I loved about it is I, I could feel like I would come into the office, I'd look at my calendar, I'd have you know five or six or 10 different things I was supposed to do in that day. And I would end up doing five or 10 or 20 things in that day, virtually none of which were the ones I was expecting to do <laughs> when I got there. Um, and it, it was a fast-paced, high-adrenaline, um, high-energy, really, really fun place to, to, to work, especially as a young lawyer. I'm not sure, not sure how you could do it for more than a couple of years. I know people do, but um, it, it was a lot. When you went uh, back after your clerkships into private practice at Kellogg Hansen, did you get a chance to do uh, antitrust law like you had uh, originally been interested in or did you do something else? I did. I did. I got to do antitrust. That was one of the reasons that um, I ended up choosing to, to work at that firm. Um, and I had a couple of great antitrust cases um, that made me, you know, it was awesome. I got to go back and, and read and cite um, chapters of the Arita Antitrust Treatise, which is, you know, one of my greatest um, honors when I was in law school was to be able to work with Louis Capolo. Um, to RA for him on um, various pieces of and updates to that to that great magisterial work. Um, so I did do I did do some antitrust I, and I did more um, federal federal law generally and, and in particular I did a, a fair number of appellate cases when I was there. You know one of the the things about you know you leave you know a Supreme Court clerkship would, and go into a firm and there's a period of time where you 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 are prohibited from doing Supreme Court practice and so. That obviously has has downsides in the sense that you you know you just had this great experience and you feel like you have some understanding of the institution and largely for that reason you can't then practice before the court because of the the appearance of that 
Um, but one of the upsides of that is that um, I got to work on all kinds of other appellate cases um, throughout the courts of appeals in the United States. And um, and that was, that was an invaluable opportunity because I got to see all sorts of things that I would have never seen that I, I'm sorry, I had never seen when I was on the DC circuit because you, you, you realize if you, if you just clerk on the DC circuit and the Supreme court and you don't have an experience to the regional circuits, there's just a whole nother world um, mm-hmm. to the way that those courts operate. So what, uh, what is it that drew you out of DC and out of private practice and took you to Texas? My goodness. It was, um, it was a really difficult, um, it was a really difficult decision. Um, you know, I grew up as you, as we talked about earlier, I grew up in Virginia and my family's in Virginia. Um, I went to school on the East coast and I did not necessarily, when I started out, have a vision for leaving, although I've always had a, a deep and um, romantic attraction to the to the great state of Texas. I used to come out here um, when I was um, a law student and, and play golf and go to um, live music in Austin. And, and so I had already, I remember telling Justice Alito when we were sort of having our end of the year reception, and it was just, you know, it was me and my co-clerks and we we're just sitting around and we're, he was asking us, you know, where he, we sort of envisioned ourselves, you know, five or 10 years, whatever it was in the future. And we're all kind of going around and talking about like, you know, one of my co-clerks was a, was a law professor and she um, had something to say about, you know, the academy. And uh, one of my co-clerks um, was a, uh, had come from private practice and was talking about that. And um, he got to me and I said, I, you know, Justice, I don't know, but I, I pray to God it's in the great state of Texas. And he, <laughs> he sort of looked at me and was like, you know, man from New Jersey. He was like, mm, I don't know about that. Um, but so I'd, I'd always had this, this attraction to the great state. But it was it was really a confluence of factors, including, you know, I was I was just I was working really hard in private practice. I was learning a ton. Um, but one of the things that I really learned uh, when I was there is that I have always enjoyed public service. Um, it's always been something that just motivates me in a different way. And, you know, one of the things I'm fond of telling my law clerks is that I, I feel better and I'm more excited when I get to go to work at a building with a flag on the roof. So I got this phone call from um, then, then the attorney general, Craig Abbott, and, uh, and to invite me down and um, to, to interview for this position in the SG's office. And I just, it was a perfect time. You know, I'd been there for, I'd been in the firm for couple, like three years, if memory serves. And, um, and I was sort of hungry for, for, for something different and, and to get back into to public service. And, um, and attorney general Abbott offered that to me. And, and it was, and, and I got to, you know, move to Texas and I got to live in Austin. It just seemed like it was, it was too much to say no to. Um, so after, after a lot of prayer and, and it was really difficult to say goodbye to my friends and all my colleagues there, but, but that's what ultimately drew me. So what did you do as a deputy solicitor general for Texas? Oh my goodness. A lot. Um, a lot. I didn't, I didn't realize it until I had to try to collect the you know, the various sort of case summaries and stuff, um, for all my tenure there, just, just how many different things I, I'd worked on. Um, so the SG's office, at least when I was there, um, you know, I did mostly federal appellate stuff. So things that I actually, you know, had some experience in, I argued obviously in, in before my current court, um, several times I did some stuff in federal district court. Um, I had at least one argument that I can remember in state court. Um, so I did do a little bit of that, but it was mostly federal, um, I got to argue twice um, in front of Justice Alito, which was the most <laughs> surreal experience. Um, <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. Oh my gosh, it was so wild. So I, um, 
I got to argue to, uh, two, I think it was in consecutive terms, although I, I'd have to go back and look at the calendar to confirm that. Um, but if you've, if you've ever, you know, stood in the well of the Supreme Court or talked to somebody who, who has, it's just frightening. And I, I don't know how many arguments I'd seen in the Supreme Court by the time I got to argue there. I mean, obviously, a, um, a high double digit number, probably a triple digit number, um, by the time I got to go argue there. And so, I was thinking that like, you you know, this is a familiar room. I understand the flow of the proceedings and, you know, I, I sort of get it, but there is just nothing. There is nothing <laughs> that can prepare you for it, like doing it um, and standing in front of that podium and being so close to the chief justice that you, you know, you feel like you're, you're, you know, having a meal with him. Um, and then the, the sort of the phalanx of the justices all around your peripheral vision, the microphone system and the audio is just, is so disarming and, and, and disorienting. Um, and then, you know, my law school dean, um, Justice Kagan, was on the bench. And so right. I, that was – I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know. I've been told – I have not actually gone back to confirm this myself. But I, I've been told that there was a question that Justice Kagan asked me at some point in one of these arguments. And, um, and I looked at her and I, I started to say, well, duh, I mean, Justice Kagan, as if to say <laughs> Dean Kagan. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know if that's true, but I, I have been told that I did that. Um, so it was, it was really interesting to see – you know, these people, because you obviously you spend a year there, you get to know, you get to know the justices, you know, Justice mm -hmm. Kagan wasn't there when I clerked, but um, a bunch of them were. Um, and so it was really, it, it's, it's a totally different experience to be there, especially just a, a couple years out of your clerkship um, to get argued case. So after being a deputy SG, you moved into the Texas attorney, or, I'm sorry, general counsel's office, including being the general counsel. Uh, what was that job like? What was that office like? What did you do? Yeah, so the general counsel to the governor is um, it's it's a an incredible job. It's another one that I don't know what you could do to prepare you for it because it's like being um, general counsel of a big company, right? You've got a whole bunch of lawyers who work for you directly in the in the governor's office, but then there's all of these other lawyers throughout the executive branch of the the Texas state government who are not directly in in the chain, but are somehow you know you have these these. They're constantly turning to the governor's office for some sort of guidance or information or uh, policy decision or whatever. Um, and so there's there's a ton of legal work that goes into, especially a state like Texas, that's, that whatever it is, the 11th largest economy, if it was its own country in the world. Um, so there's just there's a lot of issues that come up and things that you would just absolutely never imagine um, because it's 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 everything from the stuff you would read about in the newspapers to, to mundane things like, you know, HR matters and, and public information requests and things like that, that that are, you know, perhaps not as high profile, but essential to the to the functioning of the state government. Um, but more than any of that, there's, you know, your counsel to the governor. So, so the, anything that the governor's thinking about that um, has a has a legal angle, you, you know, you're the principal voice. Um, to help them provide counsel on that. And one of the th reasons that um, um, I've enjoyed so much my relationship with Governor Abbott is um, when I was working for him is that he is a lawyer. You know, he, he obviously was the attorney general, but he, he served on the Supreme Court of Texas uh, before that. Um, and a very proud uh, graduate of Vanderbilt Law School. And so he has a, a legal mind and he, he sees legal angles in ways that, that a non-lawyer perhaps would not. Um, and so it's very easy to talk to him as a lawyer because, you know, you're, you're speaking his, his language. So it, it is a very wide ranging pro portfolio. Um, that is another job where, you know, the, I don't even know why we bother having calendars because <laughs> it's just, <laughs> everything is changing constantly. There's always a crisis and, and, 
um, you know, there's just constant turnover and, and of, of issues and, and people, et cetera. So from the general counsel's office, uh, President Trump nominated you to the bench in 2018. You took the seat. So what have your first three years been like? Oh, my gosh. It's such a dream. It is, it is such a dream. Um, I, it's, I still pinch myself in it, it <laughs> because I can't, you know, I, I, I have colleagues now who um, I applied to clerk for, right, when I, when I was in law school, in law school, you know, like Judge Jones, for example, and, and now I get to, you know, serve alongside her. Um, and that is a, an, a surreal um, sort of experience, getting to work through these problems in conference with these people for whom I have this indescribable and infinite respect is, uh, is a surreal experience to see how they, they reason to learn from their, their wisdom of this institution. You know, the Fifth Circuit has a long and, and storied tradition. And there, there are people here who, who have known, um, you know, many of the great judges who, who served here and to get to learn a little bit about that history and the tradition and, and where our, our customs and policies and things came from. It's just awesome. It, it's just awesome. I mean, the cases are great. The, the, my colleagues are amazing. Um, and, I, and I get, you know, four law clerks every year, which um, I thought before I got here, I was thinking to myself, that was one of the things that I was most excited about was the, the chance to develop these relationships with four young people, you know, a year or two out of school and, and what that was going to be like. And yet I had zero um, ability to appreciate how amazing it would be um, it's just to, to see these young people and watch them grow and see them succeed and, and the, the way that their legal careers go and the, the, the clerkships they go on to from here. Um, I, it just makes me beam with pride. I, I watch them get married and have kids and it's, it's just, it, it's incredible. It's incredible. So tell me about if uh, some of the traditions you formed with your law clerks. Oh, yeah. Oh yes, I've, so I have. I've lost. Unfortunately, we do not have a baseball. I mean, we have a AAA team in Round Rock, but we do not have a baseball team. I can take my law clerks to. I'm a, um, I can take them to games. Although I do like to take them to see the Astros when we when we have occasion to sit in Houston. Um, so if I if and when I get to do that, I do honor my my um, previous bosses by <laughs> by taking them to, to baseball games. But um, we have a, a, a bunch of traditions. Um, one of them is I, I like to take them. Um, shooting. I like to take them out to exercise their Second Amendment rights, and we we go out to the, the a gun range that's near um, near Austin, and um, and we do that every spring. Um, I've developed traditions with um, Judge Thapar, who's one of my my dear friends here on the bench. You know, he's obviously in the Sixth Circuit, um, but we've sort of developed a, a almost a, a clerk family between us. Um, we've had several people who have clerked for both of us, um, and we do a, um, a a tradition where we 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 go from one year we have we host everybody in Kentucky. One year we host everybody here in Texas, um, and and that way our clerks can get to know each other, and, and we have a, a nice long weekend together. Um, and so that's been it's been a lot of fun to, to build those traditions. How did you form that relationship with Judge Thapar? You know, I met Judge Thapar. I'm trying to remember. That's a it, I met him. I think he was a district judge. It was before he was he was appointed to the to the Court of Appeals. We had a mutual friend in um, Washington D.C. Um, who was one of speaking of ways that my clerkship friends have have influenced me? Um, it was, it was um, um, uh, one of my friends who I had clerked with at the Supreme Court who introduced us, and we went out to dinner, and we just immediately hit it off. Um, you know, I I was as we were discussing, I was born and raised in, in Central Virginia, 
um, which Judge Thapar would would object to vehemently if I described it as bourbon country. Um, you know, he is a very <laughs> proud Kentuckian. Um, but it, I, I think of it as, as sort of as bourbon country. And so we, we enjoyed that and, and shared that in common. And, um, and so it was sort of a source of instant friendship. And, and then he's really helped me, you know, he's been here longer than I have. He's, he's helped me and provided me all sorts of wisdom and insights. And we, he can call and, and talk about things we're struggling with or things that we're excited about. Um, and it's just wonderful to have a brother who I can have that relationship with because, you know, one of the things I heard about this job, which is true, is that it can be kind of isolating. You know, I, mm. I, I don't have the same relationships with folks I, I used to before I got here. So it's, it's nice to have one that, um, a, a new friendship that has only blossomed um, with our tenure together. So am I correct that you two have actually taught a class together on the Federalist Papers? Oh, yes. Well, you're, you're correct that we've taught. Um, it's mild, half correct about the, the topic. We call the, the, the course is called Founders and Foes. Um, and we, we have taught it um, several years at, at the University of Virginia in their J term. And um, so it covers both the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Papers. Mm. Um, and we're, we're doing it again this January. And we, um, the, the sort of the, the setup of the class is that we will pick a theme or pick a, pick a clause of the Constitution and then we dissect it through debate. That is, we'll have a sort of the anti-federalist position, the federalist position, um, and, and try to sort of um, uh, elucidate the meaning by thinking about the ways that it was debated um, in the, the late 1780s um, from two very different perspectives, but two different perspectives from the same population um, of folks who were, tr were sort of trying to understand what this document meant when it came out of Philadelphia um, that summer. That's fascinating. And actually, that historical expertise, I think, puts you in a good position to ask uh, my final question for you of the day, which is, if you could pick any Supreme Court justice to have a conversation with, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Oh, gosh. Well, if I can only pick one justice, I would pick Justice Alito every time because <laughs> and it wouldn't even matter what we're talking about, um, unless, <laughs> unless the Phillies lost the night before, at which point that would be – so. Um, but suppose the Phillies had lost the night before. I yeah, right, right. Um, and I and I wasn't going to pick Justice Alito. I don't see how I could not pick our one and only Texan to ever serve uh, on the Supreme Court, Tom C. Clark. My dear friend Evan Young uh, wrote a great biography of Justice Clark uh, called Lone Star Justice. And there's a ton to to know about Justice Clark. And um, I have a, a lot of questions about some of his opinions, obviously. Um, but one of the the things that I find most fascinating about him is um, you know, he wrote MAP and then dissented in large part in Miranda. And one of the things that I have um, developed an intellectual interest in, largely since getting here, is the original public meaning of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, mm. which I think is something that's just understudied and, and underappreciated. Um, it has a huge impact in the work, uh, in particular, of the inferior federal courts. Um, and I think it would be awesome to sit and, and chat with him about, uh, um, about it. Well, Judge, thank you so much for the time and for, uh, for chatting with us. It's been a pleasure. It has been my great joy and honor. Um, thank you for the invitation. All right, Zach, moving on to trivia. Because uh, it is the anniversary of Justice Thomas's 30 years on the bench, I thought we'd do some Justice Thomas trivia. Are you ready? Well, considering the recent program uh, on Justice Thomas's 30th anniversary on the bench, uh, I feel pretty good about this, GC. Okay, good. Now, for our listeners, I have to uh, give a little caveat at the beginning. There is a huge 
wealth of Justice Thomas trivia out there. Now, time constraints means I have only picked a few questions, some easy, some a little harder. Uh, But if you did not get to hear some Thomas trivia that you are interested in, let us know and perhaps they'll make a reappearance uh, on another show. But Zach, up first for you, what was Justice Clarence Thomas's first language? I believe it was Gullah. That is correct. Gullah, sometimes called Geechee, I believe in his uh, documentary he called it Geechee, uh, is a Creole language spoken by the descendants of slaves in parts of Georgia and South Carolina. Mm. And that would make sense since he grew up in Pinpoint, Georgia, uh, which is in, uh, you know, in southern Georgia. Correct. Now, number two, well done. Thomas Thank you. did. Uh, oh, you're very welcome. Thomas did not initially intend to be a lawyer, but had a different career path in mind. What was it? Well, I think for a period of time he was studying to be a Catholic priest. You are absolutely right. He was going to join the Catholic priesthood. Number three, following up on that one, do you know what drove him to leave seminary and start on a different path? Well, I think he was very troubled by a lot of the racial and civil unrest at the time. And specifically, I know the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had a, a profound impact on him. That's right. Both the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy and uh, the reaction from some of his fellow seminarians, which was overtly racist uh, and very cruel. Uh, You hear him describe that in the documentary, and that really disaffected him, uh, and he left. After that, question number four, Thomas joined the Black Power Movement and only slowly shifted towards the Republican Party and conservatism. He credits two books, perhaps above all others, although he is a vociferous reader, uh, as encouraging that transformation. Do you know what those two books are? Well, I know he is a big fan of Thomas Sowell, uh, so I would suspect Thomas, multiple uh, works by Thomas Sowell uh, had an impact on him. And then I also know he's an Ayn Rand uh, fan, and I think, in fact, he even— uh, requires all of his clerks each year to watch the movie version of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Zach, you are killing it today. It's almost like you were at a whole event recently about Justice Thomas. <laughs> and if only uh, each of our trivia subjects had a documentary about their life. Uh, that, that helps too. <laughs> all right. I have a couple more that I think might stump you, but you're right. Uh, Thomas Sowell, specifically race and economics, is the one that Justice Thomas has pointed to, and Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Number five, although those two books were influential in transforming his thinking, another writer is the one that he calls the most influential over his life. Do you know who that was? Uh, so I, I think I do, and I think it's Richard Wright. I know that uh, Justice Thomas is a big fan of Wright's uh, book, Native Son. Correct, and Black Boy. He said, and I quote, those books captured a lot of the feelings that I had inside that you learn how to repress. Uh, Zach, I just want you to know and let the record reflect that it is really not fun for me when you're just killing trivia. <laughs> well, you won't have this problem again uh, for the foreseeable future, so uh, I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this one. Okay, this last one. For many people, Justice Thomas is a legend and that they would like to meet, but they probably don't realize that Justice Thomas himself has a celebrity that he would like to meet. Do you know who that is? I could guess, but I actually don't know this one, GC, so why uh, don't you tell me? You know what? I am, I am filled both with joy and regret that uh, I teased <laughs> you so much and now you didn't get it right. I, I, now I'm feeling I, sort of bad about it. Well, I spoke too soon. You know, it just uh, uh, I'm going to enjoy my good run while it lasted. <laughs> All right. The answer is, and this I found very surprising, is Spike Lee. 
Oh, interesting. Yes, Thomas is a fan of Lee's movies, especially Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. And he has said that he would like to meet Lee someday. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, even with that last question, I still think I had a pretty good run. You and, did uh, very well. We should do Justice Thomas trivia more often, you see. <laughs> Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.